Hello, strangers, and welcome to the Strange Horizons podcast for April 21st, 2014. I'm your host and fearless leader, Anaya Lay. Before we get started, I just want to share the happy news, in case you happen to miss it, that this year, Strange Horizons has been nominated for the Hugo Award for Best Semi-Prosine. It's a very strong ballot this year, and we are very honored to have made it. Congratulations to everybody for all of their nominations, and we look forward to London. Now, for this week's story, we're having Pavlov's House by Malcolm Cross. Malcolm otherwise known by his internet handle Foosball, lives in London and enjoys the personal space and privacy that the city is known for. When not misdirecting tourists to non-existent landmarks and enjoying the weather, Malcolm is likely to be found writing science fiction and fantasy. Now, settle in. Let's begin. Pavlov's House by Malcolm Cross Once, I was strong and believed. Now I am small and unbelieving. Anonymous German soldier in Stalingrad, 1943. The dream always starts the same way. A drop of rain seeps through the shattered rock block beams that now serve as a ceiling and falls into the child's eye. The rain is deadlier than the tank shells that blew the upper stories of the building block to rubble, better able to penetrate the building and kill the inhabitants. This is how. A biowarfare spore, engineered in a corporate lab and released during the Eurasian War, has survived for 40 years in the water cycle. It has been dried to dust and picked up on the wind, laced the clouds, and fallen to earth over and over, until, at last, the spore contacts human tissue. The spore's cortex ruptures, spilling its engineered payload. From the child's eye, the payload travels to the mother's hand, and from her hand to all her children. Within twenty minutes, they are all dead. Spasming, wheezing, kicking, dying. It takes the family longer to asphyxiate than it took the spore to produce fast and extreme anaphylactic shock, making every tissue bed in their bodies uncontrollably swell. Setson, Everson, Sokolai, Stolnik, Eberstetten, Erlai, and Steinfeld stop drinking the rainwater. They have been told they are immune. The fast biowarfare agents are tuned to specifically kill human beings, and they are only dogs built to superficially resemble human beings. They are not sure whether or not to believe it, because the corporate labs that engineered the spores, and later told the world that the spores were a safe way to end the war, were the same labs that later engineered the dogs, and told the world that they, and many similar products under development, would be ethical willing slaves. Not many people believe the claims Eschian Incorporated used to make these days. There is no water in the house except for the rain. 
When the revolution began, the water was cut off. By the time the brothers had barricaded themselves in the house, they call it that, though it's actually a small apartment block, there were only rusty dregs in toilet cisterns. The water boilers had been siphoned dry, and the plumbing was so empty it did not gurgle. There's an empty bucket lying beside the dead eldest child. On the second day, the family in the basement had been drinking from it and offered to share with the brothers, even if they were dogs, because there was a story in their holy book in which a woman gave water to a dog and was blessed for it. Other than that, the people of Tajikistan do not like dogs, and they do not like the brothers. The brothers had politely refused. After all, the family were civilians, and the brothers had been hired from their home, far away in the middle American corporate preserve, to protect civilians. The buckets lasted the family until the third day, when the revolution ended. The family did not want to leave the building after the revolution's end, because the revolutionaries had lynched their father from a streetlight when he came to see if it was safe to leave. Drip by drip, the bucket fills with rainwater. Setson watches the surface of the water dance, his mouth dry. He has spent 96 hours killing people. He has not slept. His judgment is fuzzy. He and his brothers used their guns to kill the revolutionaries who came to remove them from the house. He and his brothers used their fists to kill the revolutionaries who came to remove them from the house. He and his brothers used their teeth, their feet, their knives, bricks and pipes torn from the walls, scavenged grenades, and a bottle of cleaning alcohol to kill the revolutionaries who came to remove them from the house. The reason the revolutionaries killed the family's father is, he thinks, that bottle of cleaning alcohol. The brothers should not have set that revolutionary alight and thrown him from what was left of the third floor, but the revolutionaries did not fucking understand that they would never take the brothers out of the house, alive or dead, because the brothers were dogs who had been genetically engineered to kill human beings more quickly and efficiently than even the biowarfare agents could. But no matter how deadly Setson is, he is also thirsty. He has not had any water for four days. He has not eaten in four days. Four sleepless days in which he has killed 57 people. 62, including the family, if he alone were responsible. The dream, up to this point, is factual memory. From here on, it diverges with what really happened. Setson is afraid of the water. He feels like he will piss himself. He feels like the fur all over his body has been set alight. He feels like a real dog, a four-legged dog that is about to be kicked. He is afraid. Setson drinks the water. At first, everything seems to be all right. He laps it up with his tongue, and his tongue does not swell. His heart does not race. His throat does not close up. He can breathe easily. The water tastes cool and fresh. For the first time in days, he is not thirsty. The rest of the brothers join in, lapping at the rain, 
holding tin cans up to the drips, shuddering in fear of the spores until they have sipped enough water to feel the cool, clean sensation of water in their mouths. Their thirst is quenched, and they forget to be afraid. They decide, after guilty discussion, to move the family to the latrine corner of the basement, which has already been fouled, because the corpses are soiled with leaking shit and there is nowhere to bury them. They cannot throw the corpses from the third floor position until nightfall, because they will have to expose themselves to snipers. Brothers upstairs cry out that there is an incoming assault. It is time to fight. Setson feels glad. He cannot fight the biowarfare spores, but he can fight the enemy. A bullet bores into the top of his head, splashing blood and pink-gray slime out of his caved-in skull, and crashes into the poured concrete floor beneath Setson. This really happened. The revolutionaries had taken control of the government and deployed the sympathetic remnants of the Tajik army's special forces to kill the brothers with hypervelocity armor-piercing rifles which could also penetrate crumbling rock-block beams if properly aimed with wall-penetrating radar. Setson was really dead. But Setson didn't drink the water first. It was Sokolai. That is what is different. That is what makes it a dream. That is why Sokolai can dream of the fresh taste of the cold water, and why he dreams of Setson's head being broken through with agony so terrible that Sokolai cannot even dream it only scream as he wakes up, scream and howl like an animal, as though he is experiencing unimaginable pain. Sokolai is not experiencing that. He is experiencing what it feels like to be powerless to help his brother, Setson. To be powerless to help himself. It hurts. There were four windows. Sakalai moved from one to the next, to the next, to the next, all without exposing himself. A smooth roll of shoulder against paint, ducking beneath the sill, edging back into the room, back again. There was a good line of sight on the street from three of the windows, but the fourth one was on the other wall, showed him the neighbors. The neighbors weren't going to attack. The neighbors were having a barbecue. The neighbors were out in their yard, under equatorial sunshine, throwing a garden party on gengineered green lawns that were soft underfoot, walking happily around, talking to each other. And Sokolai was inside, alone, seeing broken glass everywhere it wasn't. There was a car in the street, and there were three people inside, and none of them were revolutionaries. Sokolai was sure of that. There weren't any revolutionaries in the car, or even in the country. The three people in the car weren't revolutionaries, but Sokolai had to check, had to squint, had to stand there with his heart thumping and his tail slack and his fur on fire and a tight feeling in his guts until he had seen that one of them was black and the other two were white and pale pink colored. Too pale pink to be Tajik. Tajiks were pale pink olive colored, different enough that Sokolai could tell in full sunlight. Similar enough that he couldn't 
in shadow. Sakalai moved from window to window and watched the car drive itself away, its three passengers unaware that they'd been watched by a gengineered monster with a hunting rifle locked in his gun safe. He tried to give the ammunition to one of his brothers to keep, but his hands had shaken and his mouth had grown too wet and hot, like he needed to pant the heat out of himself, and he hadn't been able to bring himself to do it. So he had the rifle and the ammunition, and he knew, roughly, how to aim so the bullets would still hit the three passengers in their heads even after being knocked off course by breaking up on impact with the car roof. Socks? AJ always called out softly before knocking. The thumps at the door didn't startle Sokolai. Can I come in? Yeah. AJ came in. He had a tray with cookies and milk on it. Heather and Lemmy are picking out a movie. They wanted me to ask if you'd join us, but I knew you'd say no, so I brought you a snack instead. He smiled beautifully. Sokolai knew, every time A.J. smiled, why A.J. and Sokolai's foster brother Michael had been in love for so long. Michael, whose family had adopted Sokolai after Estian Incorporated had been legally outmaneuvered and forced into emancipating Sokolai rather than selling him into slavery, had always loved a pretty smile. Michael had, in fact, taught Sokolai how to smile when they were both eight years old. Sokolai tried to remember how to smile, but just then he couldn't. Thank you, he murmured. You're right. I don't want to watch a movie. It's okay. AJ kept smiling, bright enough for the both of them, and set the tray down on the side of Sokolai's bed, pulling a dent in the perfectly folded sheets. Anyway, here's a snack, so you don't have to sneak around. Thanks, Sokolai repeated. He watched AJ smile and leave the room, and Sokolai couldn't quite remember how to smile. He could remember learning. Michael had stuck his fingers into the corners of Sokolai's mouth and lifted them, and that was the first step to smiling. And somehow, in the years between childhood and adulthood, Sokolai had forgotten all the steps after that and smiled when he felt happy. Now he couldn't remember how. Maybe because he didn't feel happy. It was nice being called Socks. It reminded him of Michael. Michael and AJ and Heather and Limmy had all been a couple, one of those couples where there are four people instead of two. But while Sokolai was working in Tajikistan, Michael and AJ and Heather and Limmy had broken up. And when he came home, Michael was living somewhere else and Sokolai didn't have anywhere to live, so A.J. and Heather and Limmy had let him move back in even though Michael had moved away. Sokolai missed his brother Michael. Sokolai had more than 500 brothers all exactly like him, and only one Michael, who wasn't the same at all. Sometimes, in the dream, it was Michael in the house in Tajikistan, Michael, who got hit in the eye with a drop of rainwater and swelled up and died. Michael, who sipped the water first and convulsed so hard he bit his tongue off. Michael, who got shot in the head in that one happy moment where it felt like there was a fight on its way, a fight to win. Sokolai ate the cookies. 
Sakalai drank the milk. Sakalai checked the windows, couldn't stop himself, couldn't do anything to shake the invasive paranoia that made him go and look, made him check, as if there'd be a guy climbing up who Sakalai would need to stab, to kill, to rip and tear. Sakalai took the tray back to the kitchen. Socks? Are you sneaking around? Heather squinted over her shoulder, next to Limmy on the couch. It was uncanny. She was almost as good as Sakalai when it came to noticing people. But Sakalai could smell people close by, and he didn't think Heather could. He'd been quiet, though. Hadn't made a sound. And the screen was on, volume up. You wouldn't think anyone could hear past that. Yes, he said at last, leaning around the doorframe. I was just putting the dishes back. Come and sit with us, Lemmy said, shuffling to the side, making space by climbing up into A.J.'s lap. Okay, Sokolai sheepishly clambered over the back of the couch, slumping down among all of them, amongst their love and care and kindness, their warmth. Heather ruffled his fur between his ears like a dog, even though she had to stretch up high to reach. How'd you know I was sneaking around, he asked quietly, while someone struggled with the sailing boat's ropes on the screen. Hmm? Oh, Heather smiled. You're so big you block the internet signal a little, standing in the hall. The movie loses a frame or two. The resolution drops a little bit. Really? A.J. tilted his head, squinting. Lemmy slid bonelessly down A.J.'s lap until his head was at stomach level, and his heels were on the floor. Too small for us to notice. It's all her gene-tweaking, her scrambled brains. Heather stuck out her tongue. My parents cared enough to give me the best even before I was born. I'm not even slightly scrambled, and neither is Socks. She stretched up and kissed his fuzzy cheek. She stopped, though, looking up at him. A.J. leaned in from the other side, kissed Sokolai's cheek, too. It's okay, Socks, he said gently. It wasn't okay. He couldn't sneak past Heather watching a movie. He couldn't do what she did to see if someone was in the hall or not. He couldn't protect them if the revolutionaries came. He couldn't protect Michael. He couldn't protect anyone. Nobody else understood how much danger they were in because they weren't paranoid, shell-shocked messes. Sokolai wasn't crying or anything. But they all knew what it was when he went stiff like that, when he stared, when he had his ears perked up high to listen. They all knew. It's okay, Socks. It's okay, Lemmy said, head now in Sokolai's lap. Maybe Sokolai was part of the couple that had four people in it, even if he always slept alone and never kissed back. He wasn't sure. He was sure about one thing. It wasn't okay. He very, very gently pushed Lemmy's head out of his lap and stood up. Socks? It's not okay, he said. It's really okay, Socks. It's... It's not! So stop saying it is! Why isn't it? Lemmy asked, voice hardly a whisper from where he lay sprawled on the floor. 
It's not supposed to be like this. AJ sat up straighter, mouth a hard, thin line. Be like what? he demanded. Broken? Defective? Socks? Heather reached out to him. You're not defective. He stood still, afraid that if he moved, he'd hurt them. That if they touched him, he'd hurt them. I was made to be brave, he whispered. I'm supposed to be brave, but I'm not. And you treat me like that's okay. It isn't. They held him like he was one of them and said they loved him. He didn't hurt them. He was still afraid. The purpose of checking the windows was survival. The purpose of making sure his gun was clean was survival. The purpose of eating food was survival. The purpose of drinking water was survival. There wasn't any purpose except survival. Clean the gun, clean the gun, clean the gun. Guns could jam. Sokolai's gun had jammed. He had taken that gun from the dead revolutionary's hands on day two. He'd had to break the revolutionary's fingers because the revolutionary had been dead just long enough that his hands were stiff, but not so long they were soft. And the gun wasn't very clean, and it had jammed, and he could have died. So now he had to clean the gun. The gun was a hunting rifle, the one he'd taken from the revolutionary's hands. Except revolutionaries carried Kalishnikov assault rifle riff-offs, so why was Sokolai cleaning a hunting rifle? He felt confused, disoriented. That was dangerous. Being confused meant not knowing what to do. Not knowing what to do made him vulnerable. If he didn't know what to do, he could die. He didn't mind dying if it was a choice he made when he took a risk, when he decided to be brave. He didn't mind dying if he decided to die. He could decide to die. He sucked in the hunting rifle's barrel. He spat it back out. He'd heard a loud noise, like a mortar round, and he didn't want to die. He hadn't decided to die. He didn't want to die. He could be brave if he knew why he was dying, but if the bullet came through the wall and burst open his head, he wouldn't know why he was dying, and he didn't want to die. He would happily die if he did so, trying to protect AJ and Heather and Limmy and Michael, but if he died, he couldn't protect them, and he didn't want to die. He couldn't taste cool, clean water. If he died, he didn't want to die. The loud noise came back. A bang on the door. Socks? He had to protect Lemmy. He had to protect Lemmy. He had to protect Lemmy. He had to protect... Fuck off! I'm cleaning my gun, he yelled, raw-throated. The door stayed shut. Nobody was coming in the door. Nobody was coming in the door. He'd fucking kill anyone who came through the door. Nobody was supposed to come through the door or the windows. Fuck, no, the windows. The glass was broken. He could get in quietly. Nobody was watching the windows. Where was someone to watch the windows? Where was Setson? Setson was supposed to be watching the windows. No, wait, fuck, Setson was dead. Sakalai had to watch the windows. The street was clear. No bodies hanging from streetlights. When had that been cut down? Nobody had cut it down. Setson hadn't gone out to cut it down. Setson cleaned the gun. Guns could jam if they weren't cleaned. Somewhere, 
a small voice told him he wasn't Setson. The voice was part of him called Sokolai, the part that said words and thought things and had feelings and killed people and used reflexes and was a person and fuck that part of him. Setson hated that part of him because that part of him wasn't even strong enough to stop him from checking the windows when there was nobody out there, nobody trying to kill him. Everson hated that part of him too. Everson was sitting on the roof under a pile of rubble, making sure nobody snuck up on them. Everson wasn't dead. Everson wasn't even there, but that didn't matter. None of them had been given names until they'd been emancipated. They'd been given squad designations like Black 4 and Gray 7 and Yellow 10, and if one of them died in training, they were replaced, and the replacement was Black 4 or Gray 7 or Yellow 10 instead. They'd been mass-produced, a factory run of clones. That was how it worked. It worked so well that even after 14 years of pretending to be individual people with names, they could go to Tajikistan without preparing and fight better than the special forces, because special forces were only intensively trained for two years before being deployed, and they'd been trained since they could remember, thinking in words. They were all the same, exactly the same, so it didn't matter if Setson was dead, Sokolai could be Setson instead. Stolnik didn't agree. Stalnik said he was behind the door with Limmy, and that Limmy and AJ and Heather had called him over because they were worried about Sokolai, but Stalnik didn't believe that for an instant. Stalnik knew he was using the dead family's shirts to bind their legs together so they'd be easier to carry without flopping all over. Sokolai knew that was what Stalnik was doing, and Sokolai trusted Stalnik. They were part of a team, part of a group working for the same goal, and Sokolai's part in that group was to clean the guns, and his brothers were doing all the other things that had to be done, and Stalnik should stop staring at him and go and do what he was supposed to do, which was get the dead family ready to toss out of the house. We're out of the house, Sokolai. You're off schedule, Sokolai told Stalnik. Stalnik wasn't doing what he was supposed to do. Stalnik was just standing there, looking at Sokolai. Sokolai had trouble thinking about that, so he put down the gun and started looking around for a shirt in his dresser drawers. Stalnik had to tear up the shirts. That was what he was supposed to do, so Stalnik found one and started ripping it up. Stop it, Sokolai, Stalnik said. Stalnik kept tearing the shirts because that was what he was supposed to do to survive. If they kept the family's bodies down there, they'd rot, spread diseases. Maybe the brothers couldn't catch those diseases because the family were human, but they'd been engineered to be fairly close to human, and dogs could probably get sick from decaying dead bodies, couldn't they? Or because they were scavengers, maybe they couldn't? Stop tearing up your shirts. Stalnik took Stalnik's hands and held them, and then Stalnik didn't know who he was anymore, or what he needed to do to survive. If he wasn't supposed to do that, what was he supposed to do? I'm having trouble focusing right now, Sokolai managed to say. It took an effort because making noise meant you could be overheard, and that meant someone could triangulate your position off the sound of your voice and shoot you, and Sokolai didn't want to be shot. He didn't want to die. Sit down. Stalnik took Dog and made him sit down on the bed. When Dog had been very little, had been too little to think properly, he had thought that all barking was just barking, and you had to bark just right. He hadn't been aware that barking was mostly words, words that could go together, 
Dog hadn't understood that standing in Grey Forest Place meant that he was Grey Four all of the time, not just when he was standing in Grey Forest Place in training. He hadn't understood he was a person. He'd only been Sokolai at the Emancipation, and nobody had explained anything then, either. He'd thought it was some kind of new training exercise. And then they told him he was a seven-year-old child, and that he had to go and live with a family. But there were new words he'd never heard before, like she, and her, and mother, and... And Sokolai got confused sometimes. He held his hand over his eyes while Stelnik picked up the hunting rifle. The hunting rifle tanged, the noise it made when the bolt was thrown back and a round loaded, and the unfired round landed on the sheets, bounced twice. Stelnik stared at it. You loaded the fucking gun? What's the point of owning a gun and not loading it? Sokolai asked unsteadily. Stelnik didn't reply, just took the ammunition and the hunting rifle and the knife on the table, and went downstairs for a bit, then came back upstairs with A.J.'s smell faintly on him, like they'd been talking. The smell went away fairly quickly. Sokolai's sense of smell wasn't very good. Almost human. Were you going to kill yourself? Stalnik asked. Sokolai didn't answer. I could smell your spit on the barrel. You put it in your mouth. Sokolai still didn't answer. None of us have killed ourselves, you know. I don't know why, and I've thought about it myself sometimes, but not one of us have actually done it. We ate them. Stonic didn't answer. We changed our minds because we were hungry and gutted them like deer and threw their guts out with the shit buckets and we ate them. Stalnik still didn't answer. Why don't I feel bad about it? I'm supposed to, I know that, and I don't. Why am I caught in paranoid fear for my life when I'm safe? And why don't I give a shit about cutting open an 11-year-old girl and eating her fat just because her corpse was fresh and we'd already thrown the revolutionaries' bodies off the third floor? Stalnik got up and shut the door. Why do I feel bad about the wrong things? Shouldn't I feel guilt? I feel guilty, I guess, on an intellectual level, but I don't face up to it. Shouldn't I be having nightmares about that instead of about sets and dying? Stonic came back and leaned against the wall between two of the windows. Sokolai fought down the urge to get up and check them. Well? Sokolai asked. Stalnik let his jaw go slack, slung it left and right until it clicked and finally shut his mouth. Did you get implants, or did they put you on the hormone patch? I got implanted testicles in high school, Sokolai said. Did you get those? I think we all got new balls eventually, but I was on the hormones patch for a while. Stalnik stared at him. It was a little like looking in the mirror. I met this guy who said he worked as one of our trainers once out in Columbia. He said they cut our balls off so we could regulate our brain development. 
Sokolai stared back. He said with the right mixture of puberty and drugs they were going to fuck with our brains so we wouldn't respond to emotional trauma, wouldn't develop post-traumatic stress disorder, just wouldn't give a shit. Not about death, dismemberment, not about eating meat crawling with maggots. Nothing. Sonic tilted his head slightly. When did they give you implants? I didn't get balls until I was 17, Sokolai said. I was on the patch until then. Sonic shook his head and shrugged. They got it half right with you, I guess. I guess. Personally, I threw up. I mean, I kept her down for an hour or two, but as soon as I was alone, taking my shift on the third floor, I threw up. I didn't. Cried like a baby about it, too. That help? Sokolai clasped his hands together, stared at the floor. A bit. Stonik's jaw clicked, unseen. Cathartic. Think about it. Feel it. Deal with it. Sokolai stretched out his fingers, squeezed them back together. I didn't cry. Stonik came closer, patted Sokolai's shoulder. I always figured I was a coward. Didn't confront what I did. Ran from it. Made myself a monster. Flex his fingers. Squeeze his fingers. Over and over. Something to focus on. But I guess I was already a monster, and the cowardly part was thinking I wasn't, huh? We're all monsters, Sokolai. That's how they made us. After talking to Stalnik, Sokolai still wanted to kill himself. Make Sokolai go away. Really go away. Not just get confused and think he was Dog or one of his brothers. But it turned out the Estian Incorporated hadn't made him to kill himself. After all, a product that destroyed itself wasn't any good, was it? Maybe that was why he was more afraid of dying like that hurting himself, than he was of machine-gun nests. So Sokolai went to Azerbaijan, when the crowd-funded civil war kicked off, and the population all chipped in to hire mercenaries to kill their president. It was a kind of democracy, and it was a kind of suicide. The first teams into the country went in with the government fully aware of why they were there. After all, you didn't run a crowdfunding campaign for millions and millions of new dollars without it being fucking obvious what it was for. Except, the army was too incompetent to kill him. Oh, Sokolai tried. He volunteered for all the risky shit. All the shit he could die for happy. Pulling his wounded brothers in out of sniper fire. Distracting UAVs and automated turrets so someone else could get a lock. But he couldn't bring himself to switch off his chameleon gear couldn't bring himself to step out in front of a gun. He wondered sometimes whether or not it was the devil who made him. If the Catholics were right and there was a hell, surely it had to resemble being set on committing suicide and being too much of a fucking pussy to actually do it. The house ahead was a good firing position. Clear all around, great sight lines, thick walls. He wanted to die, but a churning need to survive in his gut pushed him onwards with the rest of his brothers on the patrol. 
So far, Sakalai had seen two of his brothers die. They tried for a medevac, but had been unable to get them out in the six hours stabilizing them had bought, and fifteen get taken to one of the field hospitals they'd snuck into Baku's underground parking lots. But so far, he hadn't had that kind of luck. Maybe he'd have that kind of luck in the house. It was worth trying. Idane opened the door with a 23-millimeter shell from his light antimaterial weapon that shattered the lock, and Sokolai kicked what was left of the door down, pushing in first ahead of the others. A man in a tactical face mask, a goggle-eyed collection of six lenses winking as he looked up, gun rising, died before Sokolai could stop himself from pulling the trigger. It had been a reflex, pure, simple, perfect. If he'd been any slower than that, the man would have killed him. But the man was incompetent, and so was his friend on the far side of the entry hall, who fell back into a row of mail delivery lockers like a split water balloon, body in black uniform visibly warped around the 23-millimeter shell that must have detonated just right to splash the friend across the tiles like a bucket of paint. It was quiet while they checked the bodies. Sokolai smiled thinly. I'm going to find a position up near the roof, Edane said. If they bring the tanks, I should be able to knock them out if I can get an angle on the top armor. You coming? Sokolai shook his head slowly. I need five. Give me a minute to eat something and I'll be up with you. Sure thing. Edane slapped his shoulder and went through the shattered glass security door to the house's stairwell. The house... The house was more of a small apartment block, to be honest. Sokolai shut his eyes and took a deep, deep breath. He could smell raw meat and charring and sewage. He smiled again. He felt happy. He could smile, just like Michael taught him. He didn't know why he felt happy. Was he supposed to feel happy? He lifted the dead man's phone and thumbed on the translation program his EWAR kit had installed. The last outgoing message blinked into English. Karija, you must not be afraid. Daddy will come home when everything is safe. No, Daddy would not be coming home. Daddy was lying on the floor with his head puddled out like Setson's. Sakalai shut his eyes hard and thought about Setson thought about it until his heart shuddered in his chest and he was so afraid he felt like his body was too tight and he looked at the phone again searched around for a family photograph and compared the man in the picture to the ruination of blood on the tiles at Sokolai's feet Sokolai dry wretched Sokolai hated himself Sokolai wished he hadn't had to kill the man Sokolai wished the man had given up like the other Azerbaijani soldiers Sokolai wished the man had stayed home with his family. Sokolai's eyes were wet. He wasn't crying, but they were wet. He lifted his own phone, went to the nearest window, checked for the enemy, went to the next window, letting part of himself just move, live, breathe, do everything needed for survival, while he called home. The phone rang twice and Michael picked up. Socks? Hey, Mike? Yeah, it's good to hear from you. The gang called, asking about you. 
Aren't you, like, over there? I am. Sakalai wiped at his eye and rested his head against the window frame, staring across at the mouth of a street between two buildings, waiting for the enemy. This... this is a weird question, but you taught me how to smile, and I think I'm figuring out some of this myself, but... Can you teach me how to cry? I'm not a monster if I can cry, right? I... Jesus, Socks, I don't know. We could give it a shot. Michael was quiet for a little bit. Are you okay, Socks? I... I might be. Listen, when I get home, you... You have to teach me, okay? Okay. I have to go now. Bye. Bye. Take care of yourself. I will. Sakalai killed the connection. Then he went upstairs and helped a Dane to kill seven more combatants. By the time he'd killed the fifth, he didn't care much about it anymore. He didn't give a shit. They were just targets. But Sakalai took photographs with his rifle's camera. Later... When he'd learned how to cry, looking at the pictures would be cathartic. For now, Sakalai let himself survive. Welcome back. This story was an extremely powerful. The way Malcolm changed the pacing of the prose to reflect Sakalai's state of mind and the cycles that he went through and the repeated phrases are all really fantastic and made this really fun for me to read. What did you pick out from this story? Go to the website and leave a comment either on the story itself or on the podcast and let us know. While you're there, go ahead and check out the rest of this week's content. Among everything else, we have a poem, The God of Lost Things, by Neela Graham. One last note before you go. Strange Horizons is an entirely volunteer organization supported by donations from our fans and community. If you would like to support us, check out the donate link on our website. That's all for this week. Until next time, stay strange.